We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 145. Our guest today is not only a top-level dressage rider, but she is also a world-class farrier, so I thought it'd be really cool to have her on to talk to her a little bit about her experience with riding and how it has affected her ability to shoe a horse properly. She also has a great relationship with Formahoof, which she uses on a lot of horses and has seen some incredible results. You guys have had amazing feedback for me whenever I've talked about Forma Hoof in previous podcast episodes or on social media. So that'd be really fun to talk more about this super revolutionary product. So without further ado, I would love to welcome our guest today, Alicia Railing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're a busy lady. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm excited. So tell me a little bit about how you found yourself in the equestrian world. Sure. So I cannot explain it, but from as young as I can remember, I have been absolutely obsessed with horses. Yeah. And so I came from totally a non-horsey family and uh, but found my way into the horses. My, my parents were really nice and they bought sort of a farm when I was about six years old and I managed to wrangle some riding lessons. And then that sort of sped into getting my own, my first pony when I was 12 years old. Her name was Strawberry Cloud and she was a humane society rescue. And my parents were really brave and probably like ridiculously naive. And they're like, here, have your pony and here's a stable and go nuts. And uh, yeah, I learned so much from that pony, Barry. Yeah. And I sort of started riding her and then I, I, my folks never had a lot of money. So I was always sort of working in exchange for riding lessons or opportunities and stuff. And yeah, so then it just sort of step by step went on. I sort of also... By the time I was sort of 17, 18, running like, uh, running like a little boarding stable and stuff, like really like casual, right? Yeah, but I just totally hooked on horses. And then uh, when I was 18, I got an opportunity to go to England for a year. Started off with boarding school, which was like <laughs> not exactly the best fit <laughs> for a crazy Canadian from the wilderness. So that, that, that didn't quite work out as planned. But what did work out as planned is I did become friends with the owner of the boarding school. And she had this wild pony that nobody else could ride. <laughs> and so I started, of course, I ride it so I started riding it and then that turned into she had some connections with a dressage judge and so we would do these dressage lessons with this pony on the beach at low tide because we were wow. really close to the ocean so that's where I got my taste of dressage and then with boarding school we had the summer break and the dressage judge she was like yeah okay you know uh, what would you like to do with your break? And I didn't want to go home at all. So she says, well, we can uh, we can arrange for you to be a working student. And she says, would you like to go pure dressage or to like sort of a, an eventing jumping barn with a with a focus on dressage? And I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do that. So she arranged for me to be a working student. So I did that for the summer. And that's where I learned, wow, how to put a horse on the bit and like what actual riding is. And, uh, and then I was supposed to go back to school in the fall. But you know what, I decided, you know, I can go to school for free in Canada, but I cannot learn to ride in Canada like I can here. Mm. So I quit school and finished the year being a working student. I went back, back to Canada to finish my school in the end and university and all that stuff. But then I had like this weird, it sort of messed up my the, the end of the school. And I had sort of a six month window where I 
could do something with. And that's when I sent myself to Farrier School. Yeah, so I went to Farrier School, finished university. Horseshoeing paid for my way through university. And of course, I'm always riding, of course, on the side. And and then after university, I got this really ridiculous opportunity to have a stable. This marvelous woman named Sue O'Mara approached me and she was like, you know, hey, I'm buying this big stable and I want you to run it for me. And it was just five stalls at the time. But the opportunity to work with her, I had a feeling was going to be incredible because she had been running a part of a company called ITT out of the US. And she'd been in charge of something like $3 billion worth of company, like working with pump the pump and flow division. Okay. And this was going to, the stable was going to be her retirement project. And I thought, you know what? I mean, I have no idea where this is going to go, but gosh, darn it. I want to learn from this woman. And I did, I jumped at the opportunity, didn't think twice. And wow, what an opportunity that was. Yeah. Back went to the back burner and I focused on my riding and we grew this stable from five stables to 25 stables. It was one of the top Christian centers in the area. And yeah, I had a barn full of horses uh, training and riding. We did the jumping and dressage, more of a focus on the dressage. And with her, I ended up having a couple of fantastic horses, which I produced to pre-St. George intermediate level. And I just had the most marvelous clientele and opportunities. Like you wouldn't believe it. I was, it was just terrific. And I learned so much from Sue. She was incredible. And then, um, yeah, and then Sue sort of got to the end and Sue decided she wanted to really fully retire and move to Florida with her partner. And so at that time I decided, yeah, okay, what do I do now? You know, do I take over the farm like, and buy it or find a way or, you know, what do I do? And I, I produced, like I said, a couple of horses up to the pre-St. George intermediate level, but I really wanted to get this, this Grand Prix piece. And I thought, well, you know, you only live once. And I think the way, best place to learn this is to move to Germany. Wow. And so I did. Yeah. And so, yeah, I've been here in Europe for about six years now. Yeah. Amazing. So, and then at what point did you pick your farrier practice like back up again? Yeah. So, so in coming to Europe, it it is, it was completely nothing like I expected. Yeah. In Canada, yeah, it's so small and there's just the population density isn't there and they're not really horse people. And over here, my God, are they horse people? I mean, we're talking the best horses in the world here. And so I rode for a few people, went to a few stable, you know, worked at a few stables. And then I, and I actually really got, got going with buying and selling horses and finding horses for North America. But that's, it's a little bit sort of touch and go. Like you never know when you're going to get your next paycheck and mm-hmm. your vet checks, you know, and all this nonsense. And so there's really a need for horseshoers here. Hmm. Uh, there's really, yeah, really. And uh, so I decided, you know what, I wanted to start up the shoeing again and really get into it. And uh, yeah, that's what I did. And so I got certified in Germany. So you can trim horses with no certification or anything, but to put a shoe on a horse, you need to be what's called a staatlich geprüft Hushmieden. So you gotta be really approved by the state. That's a bit of a lengthy time consuming process. And I worked through that and I got it. So I became an official horseshoer and yeah. 
here we are. So that pays my bills, <laughs> my monthly bills. Yeah. And uh, it gives me the flexibility that I can uh, ha- ride in the morning and produce my own horses. So I've got, hmm, what have I got now? I got three horses that I'm producing now under saddle. One is going pre-St. George Intermediate and we're making the push now for the Grand Prix. And we're hoping to maybe, maybe end of this year, next year, get into the international ring. And now then I have a, a six-year-old who's just being produced as well. So yeah, very exciting. Amazing. I mean, it's so cool. And I think that with the fact that you know so much about horses and producing and riding, how has that translated to your shoeing abilities and really understanding how a horse goes? Oh man, it makes an enormous difference. So firstly, just in handling the horses, this makes an enormous difference. You know, I have the patience and understanding, like, you know, I I know when, you know, if there's a a mare who's a little witchy and, you know, she's all grumpy and giving me the stink eye, you know, I know just to like, hang on, give her a second. And, you know, when she, you know, relaxes to reward her behavior. And I think that that really makes an enormous difference in handling the horses in general. And then in shoeing for sport, this is really exciting. I, I, I really work with some interesting riders, some top riders for show jumping and dressage. And, to sit there and be able to talk with them and like make a plan for shoeing and be like, okay, you know, when you ride it, you know, how are you feeling? And then we can tweak the horse from there. And I, I have a obviously a really good understanding of, you know, what you need from the horse and, and as a rider, how you're feeling. And I, and I really value what the rider has to say. And it's just really exciting to discuss with them, you know, what they're feeling. And when I shoe them, you know, how, how that, how that follows up. And so this is, this, yeah, I think it just makes me, yeah, really well-rounded and have a deeper appreciation for how to shoe the horses. How do you find as far as the balance, because all of the farriers that I know, they are like shoeing all day long, (laughs) seven days a week. And then there's the last minute stuff. And I mean, you and I, even when we were going to record this, you had a last minute thing. And I feel like that happens a lot in a farrier's life. How do you have time for the riding and the producing aspect of your business as well? Oh yeah. So it's really hard and you have to be really disciplined, like to set your time aside and be like, this is my time. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I came to Europe to ride. And so this is really a personal priority for me. So I I set aside when I'm most, you know, when I feel my best is in the morning and I'm not tired at the end of the day. So this is why I ride first thing in the morning. I ride my horses and then the rest of the day is chewing. And that can go on late till eight o'clock at night or something. But yeah, I have to be very disciplined about that. And then, you know, if, if I know I have a really long day shoeing, then I coordinate that with when I know the horse can have a couple days off, you know, so I, yeah, so then I, I work into sort of a weekly plan. Got it. And then what does your, I mean, obviously right now things are different, but what typically does your show schedule look like? Oh yeah. So this is so exciting. So in Canada, you know, we didn't have so many horse shows, man. We had like maybe in my neighborhood, we had maybe, maybe four national competitions in an entire year. Wow. Uh, And now over here, you can go every single weekend to a horse show if you want. Uh, So last year we had a really little window of, I was able to compete with this whole Corona nonsense. So I was able to go out like, I think for about six weeks, I went out every weekend at Intermediate Precinct George to just really kind of get going and and get the horse figured out in the ring. And, And I had that opportunity. It was really super. So yeah, you can go out every weekend if you want, every other weekend if you want. Yeah, depends on the horse and where we're at. What are the most common things you see in 
a horse's foot, like just any type of like common problematic things that you are correcting in Germany? I mean, is it, do you see similar things from in North America to in Europe? Are there big differences? What are kind of your thoughts from your experience? Yeah, so I know a lot of the Americans like to use a lot of aluminum shoes. And now I do very, very few aluminum shoes over here in, in Germany. Always fighting against fungus, fungus and white line disease. That's really prevalent. And so I make a conscious effort to, you know, use copper nails to try to clean up the foot as best as possible. And I use a lot of copper sulfate and I try to be really, really proactive with my clients and trying to keep the foot healthy. Yeah, and then we have a little bit different environment. Uh, it's, it's super interesting to see how the horse's foot changes according to the weather you know if you if the horse is really in a dry environment this is something you know this is something else and the, the horse the horse's hoof does need moisture but then you know in the spring and summer or spring and fall you know there's almost too much moisture and then you have to keep the foot dry so yeah it's always this this, this weird balance of trying to keep the health the foot happy and healthy mm-hmm. Definitely. What What is kind of like your go-to system for some of your clients' horses that suffer from laminitis or foundering? What's kind of the process that you go through for those cases? Yeah. You know what? I have had tremendous results with Forma Hoof. So this is, yeah, it's like a, a mold and you put the foot in the mold and then you inject polyurethane and you, you basically get an instant new hoof. And this has been really terrific with my clients in, in treating horses with uh, laminitis. We've had horses like really, cl- like basically on the doorstep of being euthanized because they are just crippled and cannot walk. And we've used form a hoof and they literally go in the field and like gallop again. And they wow. walk away. This has been unbelievably remarkable. Also use it a couple times, uh, or not a couple times, a few times now for uh, white line disease or hoof resections. And it's been the growth of how happy the foot is inside the form of hoof and how quick the foot grows. It's just been terrific. Wow. What's the process like? We've we've had podcast episodes about Forma Hoof, so I'm familiar with the process a little bit, but how often are you going back and like tweaking and adjusting the form as the this new hoof growth is happening? Normally we put it on and then normally we go like a hoof cycle, like a shoeing cycle. Okay. So I do between four to eight weeks, depending on the horse. If we're putting it on and we're a little bit nervous, you know, a little concerned about something, like for example, I don't know, about six weeks ago, I put on a, a form of hoof and the foot was a little bit warm and I was a little bit nervous about it. Uh, and then we can go back a little bit and we, we, we maybe want to see what going on underneath the form of hoof then we can maybe you know four weeks five weeks if there's something of concern of course with form of hoof it's really great like you can put it on and then rip it off if you like desperately have to this is uh-huh. no problem you're not doing any damage but normally normally it's okay and we can really put it on for a good six to eight week cycle so cool. I, I love it. I think that's so, it's so interesting. And I know a lot of people listening to the podcast were so interested because I feel like it's such a revolutionary product. Yeah, really. And it's really interesting. There's so many people in Germany, fit horseshoers and some vets and, so, and they're so negative about it. They've never used it. They haven't, you know, they haven't, you know, they haven't really seen it and they're really negative about it. And I have no idea why. I don't know if it's a language barrier because um, a lot of the information's in English and stuff. I'm not really sure. And that's maybe what gave me a head start getting into it. But I got to tell you, like when you use it, the results are remarkable. I'm thrilled with it. 
I wanted to take a minute and say a huge thank you to our sponsor today, Formahoof. If you haven't heard of Formahoof before, our wonderful episode, episode 124 with Rob Stevenson is amazing and you get all the details of Formahoof, but in a nutshell, Formahoof is the fastest and most effective way to solve a wide range of hoof pathologies, improve your horse's long-term soundness, and to instantly reduce hoof pain without drugs. Formahoof gives farriers and vets and equine practitioners a proven and reusable solution that delivers fast, measurable results that are replicable time and time again. The unique patented liquid fit Forma Hoof molding process creates a non-invasive three-dimensional protective and supportive overlay right on the horse's hoof. By creating the form of a perfectly healthy, balanced hoof, Formahoof delivers immediate results, assisting farriers in the fight against a multitude of hoof-related disorders, from laminitis to white line disease to hoof cracks, high-low syndrome, and full limb deformities. To find out more information, please visit their website at formahoof.com. That's F-O-R-M-A-H-O-O-F.com. Thank you so much, Formahoof. All right, let's get back to the episode. For someone listening who has a horse or knows a horse that thinks like, oh my gosh, this might be a really good route for this horse. Is there a special process you have to go through because aren't there only like specific farriers that use form a hoof or, you know, know how to, you know, work that system or how does that usually go? Yeah, so actually Formahoof has understood that it's a bit of a learning curve to get going with Formahoof. And some people just don't have access uh, to a good farrier and a farrier that can apply Formahoof. So they've started this uh, Formahoof Academy, which I'm happy to be a part of, actually. Wow, nice. (laughs) Yeah. So So you can learn to do it yourself. Yeah. And if you don't want to learn it, your farrier can learn it as well. Yeah. What's the process and how did it differ from when you became a farrier in Canada and then when you had your certification in Germany to become a farrier? What is that process like now? Yeah, sure. So in Canada, it's I would say it's pretty uh, not easy, but it, there's not so many like legal restrictions yeah, and laws. So you can, you know, just start apprenticing with somebody and just, you know, hang up your shingle and go for it. And then, Mm. you know, hope word of mouth and that you're good, that you get some work. But in Germany, they're really, really strict with it. And you can't just do that. You have to go through, yeah, a whole exam process and, you know, work experience and all this stuff. It's a really serious and you actually even have to do like, you can't come right out of just high school and do it. You have to do like, like a, yeah a bachelor or something or a previous education before you can consider a beginning a horse horseshoeing apprenticeship. Okay. Wow. So I've got a young lady who's uh, apprenticing with me and she's uh, going to school and she's in university. And right now it's a little bit easier with Corona because she can uh, do it at home, but she's doing her university program, working with me part-time. And then when she's completed university, she can go ahead and become, finish her schooling to become a horseshoer. So it's a really long process. Hmm. Wow. Talk to me a little bit about the different shapes of shoes that you put on and and why you put different ones on different horses and what that kind of thought process is. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So yeah, obviously every horse is an individual and horseshoeing, I feel is, yeah, it's a science and an art. (laughs) And 
that one thing for one horse may not work for another horse. It's really wild. So, but basically when I approach a new horse, I look at it, I see how it wants to walk, how its foot wants to grow. You know, maybe it's a you know really narrow-footed horse or maybe it's a big, fat, wide-footed horse. And then I try to just make that foot and bring that foot into balance as best as I can and then we tweak it from there so I'm I'm definitely not a fan of long toes at the moment I'm using a lot of yeah libero shoes that have sort of a straight toe and some side clips that's sort of what I'm I really feel that it's yeah you're always often you're really struggling with a lot of horses that just have too long of a toe so I like to try to bring the, the horse's foot underneath him in the front so that he has easier breakover and it's easier on the joints and then that's different of course with the hind leg whereas a front leg you're looking you know for directional and it's weight bearing whereas the hind legs is more propulsion and it's really pushing the horse and so you have to have sort of yeah, more of a longer toe uh, shovel shaped foot and yeah I think it's really important yeah so it's just really important for me to try to get that horse in balance as best as I possibly can according to how the horse wants to go. Totally. Yeah. What, what would you say is an area of the industry that you are passionate about that you feel like the rest of the equestrian community either just doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk that much about? Yeah. Yeah. I'm not really sure how, if people are aware of how different the horse world is in North America versus uh, Europe. I think this is re- it was really an eye opener for me coming from Canada to see the level of horsemanship here. It's outstanding. It's unbelievable. Just like your neighborhood person is so knowledgeable about horses and the professionalism. So these show jumping riders are out every single weekend with their horses, but they don't. But it's really interesting. Like I feel like in North America and in Canada, like when you go to a horse show, you know, you're there. Your horses are parked there for a week. You know, you have your trainer and your groom and da da da, and it costs a lot of money. Mm. And here, you know, the you go, you ship in for the day, you do your classes, and you go home normally um, mm-hmm. at the national level. And I think this is very interesting. Normally. They're not so coach-oriented as I would say the North Americans are. It's really normal for someone just to take their horse out of the backyard, throw it on the trailer, go do a 135 class, and then take it home at night. And just and then you see the level of riding is just remarkable. And they're real riders. And the scale, the scale of everything. Like I said, like every weekend, all year round, you can go to a couple of shows within about an hour or two yeah. of your home normally. And just the events going on, it's like... Ah, oh, it is unbelievable. Obviously, right now it's a little bit boring. Yeah. But normally, like all year long, you've got international shows within driving distance, no problem. You've got your stallion shows in the spring. You've got your your stallion inspections, which are massive events. Massive. It fill it fills an arena. And I mean, these people love their horses and they know their bloodlines and stallion lines and mare lines. Like they are horse people. It is so exciting to be here. Wow. So, I mean, this sounds like now a silly question, but what would you recommend for someone in North America looking to gain more experience? I mean, would you recommend every equestrian to take some time in Europe? Yeah. It's a wild ride. I do. I would. If you want to really be a good rider, you got to come here. Like I, there's no way I feel that you can get miles in North America like you can here hmm. and learn to ride here 
and maybe not like a hunter or something, but for sure dressage and jumping, it is remarkable. Eventing, the like like as a rider, it's it is it's hard. It's going to be hard. Like when you come here, you're going to be sitting on the crappy horses, and you're going to have to push through. And then you go to the shows every weekend with these horses, and the hours are long, and the work is hard. But I think if you can push through that, the amount that you're going to learn is just unbelievable. So unbelievable. Cool. When you went over to, well, you already, you were in England, but then when you came back to go to Germany to move to Germany, did you have Mm -hmm. connections in place before you moved or did you move there and like figure your way out once you were there? Yeah, a little bit of both. So when we had the big stable in Canada, we actually had a lot of young ladies come from Germany uh, to be working students for us. And a whole bunch of them became like really good friends of mine. So when I came over here, I had some connections. So that opened the door and got me settled. But then from there, I had to sort of figure out where I wanted to go. And I knew that I wasn't really interested in riding a lot of young horses or dangerous horses. And so in the end, like a a really big, busy commercial stable, that really wasn't for me because I'm more interested in quality and not the quantity. And And I was a little bit older. I was like, how old was I? I was like 34, 35 when I came over here. So I wasn't really also interested in falling off a lot of horses. Yeah. So I had to find my way. Yeah. And that's where the the horse selling and then the farrier work uh, came in really, really nicely. So I can pay my bills and I can have a very good quality of life as a horseshoer and then enjoy my own horses and take my own time and do it how I want to. Yeah. Totally. So cool. Is there any thought about moving back to North America or do you feel like you are kind of a lifer in Europe now? Wow. That is a really, really good question. (laughs) I don't know. I think about this sometimes for sure. Not in the next few years. I'm definitely settled here and have some big plans and some big ideas. I mean, Canada is wonderful in that there are a lot less rules and regulations. The Germans are very serious about, <laughs> oh my God, talk about bureaucracy. But anyways, yeah. And also what makes Europe really wonderful for business with the population density. I mean, there's so many horses in a small area and you don't have to drive so far. You know, that's super nice. But then Canada is also nice. You can afford to buy a huge farm and, you know, not have your neighbors, you know, right on your shoulder all the time. So I'm not sure if we'll go back to Canada. I'm not sure if we'll stay here, but I think we'll just have to see see where the wind takes us. Love it. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to chat with me. I think it's so exciting what you're doing and how you're combining uh, work that you're still passionate about to be able to do something that you're even more passionate about and that you have big goals and dreams for. So I applaud you for that and I wish you all the best. Thank you so much. Yeah, I got a dream big, eh? Yeah, absolutely. I love it. All right, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much and I will talk to you next week.